0: Welcome to Art Scoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson.
1: The early net artists did not necessarily want to be part of the market or even of museum cultures. It was not unusual in the 90s or even early 2000s that net artists would tell you, thanks for inviting me to do some work with the Whitney or taking part in a show, I don't want to.
0: That's Christiane Paul, Director and Chief Curator of the Sheila C. Johnson Design Center and Professor in the School of Media Studies at the New School in New York and Adjunct Curator of Digital Art at the Whitney Museum of American Art. She is a noted curator who oversees the Whitney's Artport website and has for two decades conceived and administered the museum's new media exhibitions, beginning with Data Dynamics in 2001. She is the author of Digital Art, first published by Thames and Hudson in 2003 and now in its third edition, along with New Media in the White Cube and Beyond, and most recently, A Companion to Digital Art, published in 2016, weighing in at a non-ethereal 3 pounds and 632 pages. Christian, welcome to Art Scoping.
1: Hi Max, thanks so much for having me.
0: Delighted to have you. And we go back some 20 years when I invited you to join the Whitney as our first adjunct curator of net art. And you continue there to provide a platform for artists working online. Could you take us back to those early days and assess how well museums have done in the important work of preserving net art by the original pioneers in the field?
1: Yeah first of all thanks so much for uh, the opportunity to create artport and work with it so i think we have made amazing progress in preservation by now museums or the art field in general really has conservation best practices in place and strategies But that being said, there still is a lot of work to be done when it comes to the preservation of the early works. It took a while. So by now we're in good shape, but that definitely wasn't the case in the 90s. So I also have to mention that nonprofits and smaller organizations are ahead of museums. Rhizome would be a good example. They Mm -hmm. recently did, with funding from the Toma Foundation, the Net Art Anthology, where they preserved 100 net art works and really went into creating context for them, and it also culminated in an exhibition. Compare that to the Guggenheim's Brandon by Shuli Chang, which was originally created in 1998, also a really groundbreaking piece. And I'm not sure when exactly it stopped functioning, but it's been a while. And the conservation of that work was completed in 2017. So that took a long, long time. When it comes to the Whitney, we did an initiative in 2013 conserving Douglas Davis, the world's first collaborative sentence. And it was Mm -hmm. a super interesting case study because we decided to ultimately create two versions of the piece, a historical one and a contemporary one.
0: And David Ross had brought that into the Whitney, had he not?
1: Yeah, it was a gift that came to the Whitney in 1995, I believe. The piece itself was done in 1994, And I was really excited about it when I arrived at the Whitney and I started researching and asking around. And I was told by the registrar's office, yeah, we have a floppy disk. And I was really (laughs) confused (laughs) about floppy disk. I thought this was a piece of net art. And the museum system just wasn't set up for that
0: in 98 when i started as director our web presence was on a bulletin board service with about 2,000 members called echo and when i proposed building a dedicated website for the museum and buying the url whitney.org we learned that a family by the name of whitney owned the address so we ended up negotiating we bought them a new url we paid them and we had the domain name that year and you started shortly thereafter and have since kept the museum in the forefront of web-based innovation. The Walker and SF MoMA were really our primary peers at the time. And you've more recently collaborated with Tate. So I was hoping you could talk a bit about the value of collaboration in this space and how different that is from other, other departments in museums, which are much more territorial, I think.
1: Yeah, I think collaboration in this particular space is really invaluable. We're talking about networked art and we really need networked collaboration in the space. So for me, these collaborations with Tate and others have been incredibly successful the net is an ideal space for collaboration. And what this also means is that we can join forces in preserving works. And Tate recently approached us also about one of the pieces, Golan Levin's The Dumpster, and we're Mm -hmm. working on preserving that piece and creating a new version of it. So the Tate collaboration was a co-commissioning of three pieces, Andy Deck's Screening Circle, Golan Levin's The Dumpster, and Mark LaFias and Fang Zhu Lin's The Battle of Algiers. And we also recently did, more recently, did two collaborations with the Liverpool Biennial, commissioning one piece by Morashin Alayari and another one is in the works right now. The Liverpool Biennial was postponed due to covid
0: Christian, when you started, this was a new arena for curatorial practice in museums, especially in American museums. European museums were ahead of us. Yeah. I'm curious about two things. When Carol Mancusi-Ungaro joined us as conservator, this was going to be a learning curve for her, certainly, in the non-material preservation. What, what was it like to bring the conservation program at the Whitney along to embrace this?
1: Oh, Carol has been so supportive. She has been one of my biggest supporters, really mm-hmm. helping to make this happen. It's not her area of expertise, but she was always mm-hmm. fascinated by it and really open to exploring it. And we recently started the Media Preservation Initiative, recently, meaning a couple of years ago, it's actually entering its final chapter. As part of that, we have also collaborated with classes at NYU in computer science mm-hmm. and at the Institute of Fine Arts. And the students have done code analysis for us and really helped us with at least the first step of the conservation process. But I think it's been going very well at the Whitney
0: I'm fascinated by something you spoke about a while ago, which is the origins of thinking in collective ways around information and the Mundaneum way back in 1910 is an example you drew. Could you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, it's one of those famous examples of the internet before the internet. So as Hmm. you said, the Mundaneum was created in 1910. It actually followed an initiative that was already begun in 1895 by two Belgian lawyers, Paul Otlet and Henri Lafontaine. And it was their work on documentation science. So what they envisioned was creating an institution that would gather all the world's knowledge and classify it according to this interlinked system called the universal decimal classification. And the Mundaneum actually occupied part of the Palais du Saint-Conteneur, a government building in Brussels. It still Mm -hmm. exists today, but as a museum of the Mandanaeum, and there's also a web presence. And that was really the first example of the internet before the internet that always gets cited. Then following that was Vannevar Bush's proposition in his article, as we may think for the Atlantic Monthly of the Maymax, a device that never was built. But what it Mm -hmm. was, was essentially a translucent desk in which you could store information on microfilm and create trails. I'm not sure how he envisioned storing the knowledge of the world in this desk, but it was an idea. And that also inspired Ted Nelson in the first creation of Hypertext in the 1960s.
0: Can you give a little background on your own Training in this field and how you came to become the globally renowned expert you are today.
1: Well, thank you. Well, it was a winding path, but one that other people have taken too. My background is in literature, American literature, and American studies. So what really interested me was this idea of nonlinear reading and writing and associative writing in experimental literature. And when hypertext came about in the late 80s, so the possibility of creating linked electronic text through software, I jumped on it and really investigated that, and I ended up, before the web in the early 90s, writing an educational hypertext software on T.S. Eliot's Wasteland, which is also often considered a proto-hypertext in its interlinked kind of pathways and that really led me into the web and looking at art and education on the web and in the mid 90s i founded together with a colleague of mine at nyu a newsletter and later on quarterly magazine called intelligent agent and museums and arts organizations and galleries started contacting us all the time about how to curate net art, what do we do about this? And at a certain point I was thinking, well, rather than consulting, I might as well start doing this myself. And that's what really led me into curation of digital art and net art.
0: Right, and that's when we brought you into the Whitney's Embrace. And not long after you started, you presented the exhibition Data Dynamics in 2001. What was its reception (laughs) like at the time, especially by your curatorial colleagues? Let's start there. (laughs)
1: Okay. So first of all, background. Data Dynamics showcased art projects exploring the processing and visualization of dynamic data, be it in the form of an alternative web browser or a mural drawn by visitors' body movements. And as you said, data visualization was a relatively new artistic practice at the time, and this really was a groundbreaking exhibition. While all of the projects had a web-based component or originated on the net, they were really presented as large-scale installations. And I also want to mention that Data Dynamics was presented in conjunction with Bitstreams, a show by Larry Mm -hmm. Rinder on the fourth floor that dealt with digital art at the Whitney. So as to the reception, I think my colleagues were as puzzled as a lot of the public, (laughs) but whenever someone asked me that question, I actually quote you because you did such a perfect assessment of it, in my opinion. I remember you saying to me, well, visitors loved bitstreams and were completely puzzled by data dynamics. The new media community loved data dynamics and hated (laughs) bitstreams. So uh, it was super interesting, I think, because the exhibition, I would say, was ahead of its time for better or worse. Mm -hmm. If you would have invited today's me to do that show 19 years ago, I'd probably say, nah, that's not right for the Whitney's audience. But I'm also very happy that me 19 years ago just went ahead with it. Only a few months after the show opened, it would have been impossible to realize it, the way it was conceived and done. And that was because of 9-11. One of Mm -hmm. the pieces in the show, Adrienne Wartsell's Camouflage Town, actually featured a robot, Kiru the robot, who was roaming the ground floor and lobby gallery of the Whitney. And you could talk through it, over the internet, and also switch between several security cameras. All of those web-based cameras were, of course, immediately discontinued after 9-11. I do Mm -hmm. not see how that piece could have happened at that point. And I think while there was a lot of bewilderment about the show and a lot of negative (laughs) critique at the time, it really has become... A historical one. And the reason why the new media community, in your words, also loved it was that they finally saw an exhibition dealing with what they had been working on, while Bitstreams, which was a great show, really mixed traditional works talking about digital culture, but not using it as a medium. And that created a lot of pushback from the new media community at the time. Mm -hmm. So it was a really interesting case.
0: And you've been so helpful in bringing along newbies to this space. Last year, you spoke at Tate about the history of net art and it's online and we'll link to it on this podcast so listeners can go there and really figure out what we're discussing in depth because you show some images and you really walk us through the history. But let's go back to a definition of net art as distinct from other corners of the art world, if you would favor us with that.
1: Mm -hmm. So in the narrower original sense, net art really means art that uses the internet as its medium or material that is accessible via the web and cannot be experienced in any other way. So it really lives in that space which also is why it has received so much attention this year in the times of the pandemic where it essentially was the only art form that could be seen natively rather than as representation. So I would say that the definition of net art as all definitions of art do has changed over time. Today, I also see a lot of networked art that uses the internet but does not necessarily reside completely on the net or that uses mobile devices a little bit more. And while in the early days, net artists really understood themselves as artists working exclusively in that medium, you find a lot of younger artists and practitioners today who cross media. They create an installation that has a web-based component that also plays out on your smartphone, etc. So the idea of art, I think, has really changed over time.
0: With that change, you started ArtPort as a platform for NetArt almost 20 years ago. But it's still around, which amazes me. How have the objectives changed over the years, Christian?
1: I wouldn't say that Artport's objectives per se have changed. It still strives to provide access to original works of NetArt commissioned for the platform and documentation of some digital art exhibited at the Whitney. And it introduces visitors to net art within a museum context and chronicles how the medium of net art has developed over time. So I think on that meta level, things have remained unchanged. What has changed tremendously is really the art and the way it is brought to its audience, mainly through the rise of social media And then also due to this development of networked versus net art that I just talked about, just if you Mm -hmm. look at the works we recently commissioned, they're fundamentally different from what we did in the early 2000s. And I always joke that in recent years I have worked more with the Whitney's terrific lawyer on these pieces than with my (laughs) colleagues in curatorial. Because um, we featured such works as Ricardo Uncut by Eva and Franco Mattis. And what the artists did here was really put out a call for someone to sell the contents of their phone, only the images, that is. (laughs) And then piecing those images together into the story of a life and Mm. ricardo was the one whose phone was purchased in the end and it is absolutely amazing to see that archive of a personal life over many many years Uh, so that is really a completely different way of presenting art or dealing with networked art
0: Museums have not always been receptive. At the Tate, you quoted Franz Thalmer's 2007 utterance, it's easier to get an entire museum collection on the internet than to get a single exhibition of internet art in a museum space. Has that changed materially? Are there still holdouts among museums that are devoted to modern and contemporary art in this space? Oh, uh,
1: yeah, absolutely. That situation has not changed, and there are still holdout, but the reasons for the difficulty may have changed. In the past, net art simply was too new an art form. It was very difficult to translate into museum space, and museums were very hesitant to do that. And I mean, you brought net art on board, really, in the 2000 Whitney Biennial. So there were a lot of difficulties when it came to supporting it, presenting it. I think today people are much more familiar with the concept of net art since the internet has become pervasive, but that also begs the question whether we still need to introduce audiences to net art in an environment that isn't the art form's native one. So I Mm -hmm. see, first of all, less of an interest in doing shows of net art per se. But what really needs to happen still is integrating net art more into exhibitions at large. If you look at the percentage of net art that is being shown of collection exhibitions, thematic exhibitions, etc., I believe it's too low. It doesn't happen mm-hmm. often enough.
0: Yeah, but it's true of so much of both the history of art and the art of our time that it isn't made for a museum, and yet people have adapted themselves. So I think it's more a question of open-mindedness. How do institutions differentiate between collecting and licensing net art?
1: Well, traditionally, net art was commissioned and licensed by um, museums and institutions. So you already mentioned that there were programs at the Whitney, at the Walker, at SF MoMA. So all of us commissioned these works under non-exclusive licenses. And the reason Mm -hmm. why I argued for that was really, we don't have a framework for collecting, for preserving this type of art. Um, at the time, there was the motto of distribute or die for Net art, So it made sense to do the commissioning under a non-exclusive license and let the artists retain copyright. That changed a little bit over time. So in 2015, the Whitney made the decision to bring all of the Artport works as an umbrella collection into the museum's collection at large. It was mm-hmm. also to support the artists, because they were kind of stepchildren of the institution. Mm-hmm. They didn't have collection artist status, etc. So we wanted them to have that, but we also thought that it would go against the medium to lock the work down by saying, Oh, this is now owned by the Whitney only. So we basically played it both ways. You know? kept Mm -hmm. the licenses, and also made the work part of the collection. Uh, Other institutions have been a little bit more radical about that. SF MoMA really brought commissioned net artworks into the collection in a more traditional sense. So either way, the art is accessible to the public, of course, but what changes is the back end and the rights to the work.
0: Right. Tell us a bit about, Your teaching. What are some of the topics you cover at the new school? And how have the interests and the motivations of students in the field changed over time?
1: Yeah, I feel very privileged in that my curatorial practice can really feed my teaching. So at the new school, I've been teaching courses such as curating digital art, educating the next digital art curators, hopefully, or media art histories, or even more production courses like Experimental Narratives, where students explore nonlinear storytelling in the digital space. So for me, that's going back to my roots a little bit. I would say that the interests and motivations of students really follow the evolution of the media landscape. So more recently, there has been a growing interest in transmedia and digital storytelling, which has been on the rise in almost every field from movie production to advertising, et cetera.
0: Mm -hmm. You have said in the past that early net art was playful only to be colonialized by commerce. And commerce has certainly made itself at home in the visual arts in general. So how do net artists in particular make room for creativity in this midst of a commercialized sea of the web?
1: Well, I would say they still make room for creativity by subverting and questioning (laughs) the commercialized sea of the web, which they have always done. Early net art definitely was playful. I think it wasn't naive. Artists from the start saw this coming. They knew that commerce would really colonialize the space, but it was easier to play with structures. So I think artists today really creatively use commercial platforms such as Instagram or Facebook for performances. Amalia Alman or Ed Fornielis have done that for example. I think the tone of the net art created in these spaces has changed While artists in the 90s were really playfully creating new browsers, etc., artists today are more aggressive, ultimately, in engaging with platforms such as Google or Facebook, with lawyers working Mm -hmm. hand-in-hand with them.
0: (laughs) But those are platforms we all have access to. The art market is one which is a privileged preserve. How do net artists live apart from that or live in it?
1: Yeah, they're living much more in it. The early net artists did not necessarily want to be part of the market or even of museum cultures. It was not unusual in the 90s or even early 2000s that net artists would tell you, thanks for inviting me to do some work with the Whitney or taking part in a show. I don't want to. I want to exist (laughs) outside of that space. I think over the years, we have seen much more interest in playing within that field and having commercial success within it rather than operating on the fringes. I would say in the past five years, definitely, I have very often participated in panels at art fairs from the Armory Show to the Chicago Expo in panels that were really devoted to how do we collect this type of work? So Mm -hmm. gallerists are now selling net art much, much more and at a higher price than Mm -hmm. in the past. So the landscape has definitely changed.
0: Christian, in your book, A Companion to Digital Art, you write about artworks that have the quality of being Hyper real, you continue, that seems to be neither artificial nor an authentic representation. I'm wondering which artists are using augmented reality in effective ways.
1: Yeah, augmented reality has been one of the forms of digital art that has been on the rise in recent years. And once again, during the pandemic, also another art form that was more easily accessible. And I think a lot more interesting work will happen in that specific space. So the great advantage augmented reality has is that it can present alternate realities by annotating physical reality surrounding us. And there's also the accessibility factor in that it is art that you can view on your mobile device in public space. So there have been interesting artworks that have played with accessibility. The Manifest AR Collective, for example, did an exhibition called We Are at MoMA, spelled We AR at MoMA, (laughs) uh, and placed the whole exhibition into the museum space without letting them know but questioning precisely those boundaries. MoMA found out about it, but wisely just went with it and let them do Mm -hmm. it. And Manifest AR also created alternative pavilions at the Venice Biennale, dealing with artists who were neglected or excluded. And we did recently a piece at the Whitney by Tamiko Thiel, Unexpected Growth, which was commissioned for the sixth floor terraces and I think it was very successful. What Tamiko envisioned was a stage of climate change where the Whitney's terraces are already underwater and you see this beautiful coral reef <laughs> that is made entirely out of plastic pollutants, you know, from plastic forks to flip-flops, etc. So it's mm-hmm. both beautiful and eerie and a warning, yeah. You know. And it also had an interactive component in that the more people viewed it, the more bleached that coral reef became. And Hmm. visitors were reacting very positively to it, downloading it onto their phones. We also made iPads available in the windows to view
0: it. Well, Christian, speaking of artists working outside of the boundaries of institutions, net artists' acts of protest with protagonists including electronic disturbance theater, can be confused with the malevolence of antisocial hackers. So I'm wondering how you would describe the boundaries between protest and antisocial disruption.
1: Yeah, that's a terrific question and one that strikes at the very core of a fundamental change we have recently seen So in the 90s, web-based protests and electronic civil disobedience continued traditions of protests that we're familiar with in physical space, such as blocking roads or chaining oneself to the entrance of buildings. So you mentioned the electronic disturbance theater, in uh, 1998, they launched what has often been called the first electronic act against a target on American soil. I'm actually not sure if that's true, but you know, mm-hmm. it's sad to be true. So they wanted to draw attention to the struggle of the Zapatista rebels against the Mexican government and used a Java applet called Floodnet to overload the Pentagon's websites with a denial-of-service attack. I actually participated in that way back um, when. What the electronic disturbance theater didn't quite see coming was that the Pentagon would uh, launch its own defense, another Java applet. So it quickly became a battle between programmers. um, And at that time, there was something very playful to this. But with increasing cyber warfare and the use of social media for antisocial Disruption. this landscape has changed a lot. So more recently, I've heard from so many artists who have said that the alt-right and antisocial disruption on a large scale have really mm-hmm. co-opted their strategies and that mm-hmm. they have to completely change their practice and do not feel comfortable with that anymore. Mm-hmm. Protest now is becoming a little bit more earnest in terms of activism because artists are very conscious of the whole sphere of fake news, etc. What the Yes Men used to do in really impersonating people and doing role play on the news, that is something that we so commonly see right now (laughs) from all corners that it has become problematic.
0: And we're at a threshold of a major change next month with the change in administration, and I hope with it, a more open and tolerant worldview <laughs> coming yes. out of the White House. Christian, thank you so much for making time for this today. And I'm excited to point our listeners to the resources that you provide online and look forward to staying in touch.
1: Thank you so much for the opportunity.
0: We've been speaking today with Christiane Power. Director and Chief Curator of the Sheila C. Johnson Design Center and Professor in the School of Media Studies at the New School in New York and Adjunct Curator of Digital Art at the Whitney Museum of American Art. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Art Scoping. If you liked what you heard, leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts, which helps other listeners find their way to us.